May all who come behind us find us faithful. I pray that that's the desire of each and every one of us. Our passage this morning that we'll be looking at has to do, has to deal with how we can be laying that groundwork, setting the proper example. So I've entitled my message this morning, Preparing the Next Generation. Preparing the Next Generation. And we'll be looking at 2 Kings chapter 6 and verses 1 through 6. 2 Kings 6, 1 through 6, as we look at preparing the next generation. As we've seen thus far, the ministry of Elisha has been met with various ups and downs. He has dealt with people like King Jehoram, if you remember him, who only wanted Elisha's help when it was convenient to him, but wanted nothing to do with him the rest of the time. We dealt with people like Naaman, who expected Elisha to treat him a special way, especially like he was royalty. But then when the Lord changed him, he humbled himself before the prophet after God wrought that special work within him. And then we have people like Gehazi, a man who was there to witness the many miracles of Elisha and somehow came away thinking how he stood to benefit from all of it. We've looked at a number of different miracles, but little has been set up to this point regarding Elisha's ministry. Elisha had a great passion for educating and equipping men for ministry. And I think it goes without saying just how important it is to adequately prepare the next generation. And that is why, and that is really what we see happening in our passage here this morning. Throughout our study on the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha, we've hinted towards some of the work that he's done with this group of people that's referred to as the sons of the prophets. And we've talked about the relationship that he's maintained with them. And this was something that began under the ministry of the prophet Elijah and has continued with the prophet Elisha. And it's worth pointing out that during these days, the nation of Israel was at a spiritually low point. They were steeped in idolatry. God was, in fact, using their enemies to come in and judge them. And in case in point, God had used the Syrians to come in and to destroy Israel and to take uh, captives, those that were there in Israel, to come and to serve them in their land. This is what we were introduced to in chapter 5 with the little Jewish maid who was serving as a captive in the land of Syria, ministering to Naaman's wife. God was not pleased with Israel during these days, but there was always a remnant that remained faithful to God and continued to worship him even when the worship of God wasn't just unpopular, but in many cases it was outright outlawed. From what we've seen, somewhat sprinkled throughout the story of Elisha thus far, is that he dedicated much of his time and much of his effort into training and equipping young preachers who were formed into schools and they were known as the sons of the prophets. And we see them in different cities throughout his ministry. And based on what we've seen thus far, there were probably three schools. We see them in Bethel, we see them in Jericho, and we see a third in Gilgal. And from some of the language that we've seen, it seems that these schools also were open for others to come and for others to, to learn and to educate and to fellowship because on several occasions we're told that there were other people that were in connection with the sons of the prophets. Now the point is that Elisha was dedicated to their cause, to training them, to equipping them, to prepare the next generation of ministers of God. 
He was determined to teach people God's truth, whether they were preparing for full-time ministry or whether they would go into some secular field. Either way, he was trying to lay the, the groundwork for people to be in ministry wherever they were, whether it was in his day or even where we find ourselves today in 2023, there is still a great need for people to be trained, to be equipped, and be prepared to be ministering for God. Several years ago, a friend of mine asked me to sign up with something called LinkedIn. Have any of you ever heard of LinkedIn before? Just a couple of us? Okay. LinkedIn, for those that may not know, it's... it's and I'm not even really familiar with it all that much. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's a social media site of some sorts that is specifically geared for those that are looking for jobs, looking for some sort of a career, a career change. And so a friend asked me, he was in the middle of looking for a new job, and I, I don't know exactly how it works, but he needed to have a certain number of followers. And so he said, why don't you sign up and you can be a follower of mine because I'm at like the 499 mark and I need to hit 500 in order to boost myself. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So several years ago, I signed up for it. And you have to fill in some basic information as far as who you are. And I did that when I first set it up. I haven't looked at it since. And I really didn't look at it all that much then just to find his name and do what I needed to do to be a friend or to promote his page. Or I can't remember exactly even the right terminology, but I got him to that benchmark that he was looking at. And so recently, I've been getting emails from LinkedIn. And over the last several weeks, maybe into the last month, I've been getting emails from LinkedIn. I haven't heard a single thing from this company in the last five years, whenever it was, that, other than my, the initial email that you get welcoming me to their site. Haven't heard a thing. But in the last month or so, I have been getting emails from, from them with all sorts of advertisements from churches that are looking for a pastor. I, I'm, I'm not looking to go anywhere. But I was shocked. I just started clicking on some of these things because a lot of them are local. And I started seeing how many churches there are without a pastor and how long some of these churches have been without a pastor. Even with schools specifically dedicated to educating and preparing young men for the ministry, there is a shortage of people prepared for ministry. And then you have some who are ill-equipped but are convinced that they're ready for full-time ministry. Whether going into full-time ministry or even serving Christ in some other field, each of us need to be prepared for the Lord's work, and we need to be actively working on preparing the next generation. Who is going to continue the work once we're gone? That's why we have things like the fall festival. Three, three children that were saved. Now, the hope is that we can reach out to these kids and, and add them to the church here physically. Some of them don't even live geographically in this area, but that we can get them plugged in in some other church so that they can be the future leaders of those churches. But how are we expecting to grow? How are we expecting to sustain our ministry here at Latham Bible Baptist Church if we're not eager in preparing the next generation and even having a burden for the lost? You know, and eventually, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who's going to be left? Who's going to be left? Young generation, maybe we'll hopefully add more people to the church throughout those years. But if we're not actively working and preparing the next generation to go out into the ministry, what are we going to be doing? Where are we going to be? And think about it in the home. As parents, we need to be setting the right example for our children to follow and train them upright so that they have a hunger and a thirst for God and for the things of God. What's important to you 
will eventually be important to your children. So make Christ a priority in your life. Make it so that your children see you reading the Bible. Make it that your, that your children see that prayer is an important part of your life as a family. And not just something that you, you gloss over as quickly as you can so that you can start eating the food that's in front of you. Take time to pray. Take time to pray over, over needs of the people that God has placed in your lives. Take time to pray over the things that are happening in your life and include your children into that. Now, as we look at Elisha's 12th miracle, we're going to see just how he's working on the next generation, trying to prepare them, trying to equip them for the ministry that they're going to be all involved in. And notice, first of all, as we see this 12th miracle, the connection of the miracle, the connection of the miracle. Look at what we read here in verse number one of 2 Kings chapter six. 2 Kings chapter six and verse number one. It says, and the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, behold now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, we know that the chapter divisions don't always signify a change in context or even a change in time. And in this case, here in 2 Kings chapter 6, it begins with the word and. Now, how many of you know what the word and is? Who is an, an English person who knows? Know everyone's an English person. I mean, you're living in America. You're basically English. But who knows what the word and is in the English language? Conjunction. It's a conjunction. Which does what? A conjunction. Yeah. Conjunct, conjunction. What's your function? No. It joins, Right? It joins two thoughts. So chapter 5 ended with Gehazi becoming smitten with leprosy. Chapter 6 begins with the word and. And the sons of the prophet said unto Elijah. So, so it's almost letting us know that there's not a huge gap of time between these events. There's a connection between the miracle, which is not a good miracle, but a miracle nonetheless of Gehazi being stricken with leprosy and what we're going to see here in chapter 6. There's a, there's a distinct connection between the two. Gehazi, again, Elijah's servant. If you're not familiar with what we talked about last week, he lied to the prophet about taking money from Naaman, who Naaman was originally the one stricken with leprosy. He gets cured, gets saved offers a gift to the prophet Elisha for the incredible gift that God has given him. And Elisha turns him down and says, no, I want you going home thinking that God has given you nothing or nothing but his grace and has taken nothing from you. And so Naaman, or rather Gehazi, gets this bright idea that he can chase after Naaman and ask of uh, ask of him some things and come up with this whole story that there are visitors that they're having coming in from out of town. They could really use some money and some clothes to help with these guests that are coming in from out of town. And Naaman happily gives him what he what he asks and sends him off with even more and as Gehazi's sin is found out he ends up getting stricken with leprosy but both miracles we're seeing occurred in the same general region and each miracle was occasioned by dissatisfaction with the position its subjects occupied so again Gehazi's situation was reprehensible the sons of the prophets though was commendable Gehazi was acting unfaithful. He was acting deceptive. While here the sons of the prophet, as they come to Elisha in verse number one and say, behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Their situation, they're coming and acting in a place of devotion and diligence. While Gehazi was gonna take matters into his own hands, the sons of the prophets preferred to seek permission from Elisha before they do anything. With Gehazi, an act of theft was committed. We hear with the sons of the prophets, something borrowed is actually gonna be recovered. 
With Gehazi, a curse is pronounced upon him, and with the sons of the prophets, an object was recovered from a place of judgment. So there's a connection between these two miracles, the 11th and the 12th miracle of, of Elisha. And notice second, the occasion of the miracle. The occasion of the miracle. Look again at what it says here in verse number one. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, some scholars will look at this verse and suggest that the sons of the prophets are approaching Elisha with this dilemma because they're simply unsatisfied with their current living conditions and they wanted something better. Now, based on the context and what we will see from the rest of this passage, there's no reason at all to suggest that these men were acting out of anything other than sincerity. It wasn't that they were just spoiled and wanting better accommodations and better amenities. It wasn't that their living condition was you know, so poor compared to someone else. They were just too crammed, is what they were saying here. They're bursting at the seams. They've overgrown the facility that they've been using and, and living in to the point where they need to now expand. They outgrew their space. This uh, this request didn't come from a place of covetousness. They, they hadn't seen someone else's facility and said, man, they really have it going. They have ping pong tables over there. They have hot tubs over there. They have all this wonderful amenities over there. Why can't we do that? Elisha, it's time that we go and build a better place for us because you know we're, we're sick and tired of these old and tired accommodations. It wasn't that at all. They had just outgrown their space. Their space was no longer big enough. They probably had bunk beds everywhere. And when they tried to gather together for teaching and for learning and for the school portion, they were all on top of each other, packed in like sardines. So this is a great problem to have. This is a great problem to have. The number of these men was growing immensely, so much so that the space they had, they couldn't squeeze them all in. They were literally limited, limited to standing room only, and even then it wasn't enough. Men were being trained and equipped for ministry, and the facility that, that they were using couldn't contain them. How awesome is that? And consider the timing. Again, I've already kind of told you, but consider the timing. This was not happening at a time when the nation of Israel was faithful to God. This was during a time of spiritual darkness when the nation was steeped in idol worship. They're not worshiping God during these days. And yet God was using Elisha to have such a massive impact on the nation through these schools of the prophets to the point where this one here is just bursting at the seams. Enrollment was booming to the point where they're having to build a bigger school. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging considering the time and the place of everything else that was going on around them, this shouldn't be happening. Numbers should be dwindling. This type of establishment should have been closing down, not expanding. I dare say that things are not that different from the spiritual apostasy of the nation of Israel during Elisha's day to the spiritual apostasy of New York in our day. Year after year, and I've shared this from this pulpit before, year after year, Albany and the Capital Region continued to top nationwide charts as the, being the worst and the most unchurched region in the entire country. In the entire country. They couldn't find other areas that were worse than us. In the entire country. Not just... 
the county, the entire country, all 50 states. We're the worst. We're the worst at being churched. We're the worst at maybe even sharing the gospel. The most unchurched people here right in our front yard. People don't want to attend church. Parents don't want to send their children to Christian schools. Now that's not to say that Christian schools are the only means of raising young, and, young men and women for ministry. But there are because there are plenty of, of families that are doing a phenomenal job homeschooling their children and preparing them for ministry and, and serving the Lord. But in general, Christian school enrollment is down dramatically across the state of New York. We live in an age of spiritual darkness where people have made idols out of almost anything and, the, and are content worshiping creation over our creator. Now, some look at these statistics and they think, well, you know, why do I want to live in a place where God is not honored and where church is not taken seriously. And many believers are leaving New York State. And they're leaving to relocate to a place where they believe that is more God-honoring and more God-centered. They want to surround themselves with, with more wholesome and more people that share the same views as they do. And I can respect that. But I also can't help but look at it from a different perspective. I look across this state of New York with all the declining numbers of churchgoers and Christian school enrollment, and you know what I see? I see a great need for evangelism and soul winning. Somehow the schools and the prophets in Elisha's day were able to increase so drastically that they needed to expand. They needed to build a new building in a time where the nation was against God. How did that happen? How did that happen? What was Elisha doing? He had a heart to serve God wherever God led him. Everywhere that he went, he was ministering to people, and it didn't matter who it was. Every opportunity he had, he was pouring into the lives of the sons of the prophets. He wasn't just serious about ministry when he was within the walls of those schools. He was serious about ministry all the time, regardless of where he was. I think one of our biggest problems is that we're not serious about ministry enough beyond the walls of this building. Now sure, we'll talk about what we should be doing, all the problems that we're facing, how important it is to be faithfully serving Christ, but does that always translate into active ministry once we leave this building? I would love absolutely love to outgrow this building and need to build a new church somewhere else uh, for a number of reasons I'd like to do that but I'd like to do it because we are outgrowing and we're bursting at the seams here in this building I'd love to do that I'd love to have conversations with you all at business meetings saying we've got some big problems we don't have enough room in this sanctuary and we're going to break down this wall and turn that gym into an expanded sanctuary because we are bursting at the seams. I'd love to tell you that. I'd love to have those conversations. I'd love to start looking at land where we can build and break ground so that we can build a bigger church to house every one of you that come out. I'd love to be able to do that. And it's easy. And it's a great attitude to have. But we're not going to get there unless we're active about ministry outside of these walls. How do we ever expect to get there if we don't have a heart for the people that God has given us here first, let alone a heart to minister to the people that are outside this church? It's the easy way out to say that New York and the Northeast is completely indifferent towards Christ. A lot of people will say that. 
And if that's your attitude and the excuse as to why you don't seek evangelism and have no burden for the lost to, to win souls for Christ, perhaps you should move away. Perhaps you, you should go to another state. If you're looking for the right place and the right opportunity to serve Christ, welcome to New York. If you're looking for the opportunity to be a light in a dark place, welcome to New York. Where else do you want to be? It's like being hungry and God puts a buffet in front of you. Here you go. Enjoy. I don't know if you understand this, but we as Christians here in New York have job security. I look at that, we're topping the charts every single year. And I think the worst that we've, or the, the, maybe the best that we made it is top three. And not just one, but we've top three. So that's not really that much better, is it? And all the different counties and all the different cities across this nation, whether we're one, two, or three, topping those lists as being the worst, there is always a need. There is always a need. So if you're looking to get involved in ministry, look no further than your front yard and your backyard. Look no further to the neighbors that you have living next to you. When Jesus was traveling through the region of Samaria, a region his disciples did not want to travel through, he stopped for some water. And he sent the disciples into the Samaritan town of Sychar to go and to purchase food because they were traveling from the southern region of Judea up to the north in Galilee. And it was a significant journey enough that they needed to stop to get a drink of water and to get some food for the rest of their journey home to where they were going. The disciples didn't want to be there in the first place. The Jews and the Samaritans had a mutual hatred for one another. The Jews looked down upon the Samaritans as being only part Jewish, and so they were considered to be like dogs or even less than dogs in the eyes of the Jews. And the Samaritans had an equally, equally as advanced hatred for the Jews. They, they couldn't stand them. They avoided each other. They all understood that they don't talk to one another. They don't conduct business with one another. They don't even travel in the same parts because they don't like each other that much. The hatred runs that deep. So naturally, the disciples, being Jewish, wanted to avoid traveling through the region of Samaria. And sometimes they would add days to their journey. If they were going from Galilee to Judea in the south, they would go clear around Samaria. Samaria was a straight shot going through it, but you had to go through people and lands that you didn't want to talk to, people that you didn't want to interact with. And so they would add days to their journey by going all the way around to go to Jerusalem or to go the other way to, other way to Galilee. And so as they're traveling from the south to the north, Jesus says, hey, guys, we're going through Samaria. And they're saying, listen, Jesus, I know, you know you're kind of new to this whole thing, but there's this long-standing bitter hatred between, uh, between us and the Samaritans. You know, this is actually the route that we take going this way. I know it seems longer, but trust me, you'll understand. And Jesus says, guys, I don't care. We're going through Samaria. Oh, and by the way, while we're stopping in Samaria, we're going to get some water, and I'm going to send you guys into the Samaritan town where you're going to have to deal with these people face-to-face -face and actually buy food from them. And the disciples are thrilled by this. Oh, thank you so much. So they stop for water and he sends the disciples to go into the town of Sychar to go and to buy food. They don't even want to be there in the first place. They, they think of just walking through this land of the Samaritans as bad enough. Now they're forced to interact with these people. So you can imagine how reluctantly the disciples followed these orders. They were like me going to the mall. I'm, I'm going in for one thing. I'm going in, I have one store to go to, and I have to walk by probably a dozen stores to get there, but I'm not going to stop on the way there. I'm not going to interact with anything or anyone. I'm going into the store, I'm getting what I need, and I'm out, and that's it. 
in and out within five minutes because I'm on, a, I'm on a mission and I don't need to be distracted by anything else. This is the mindset of the disciples going into the town of Sychar. Fine, if we're going to do this, then we're going to do this our way. We're going in there. We're getting what we need. We're not going to make eye contact with these people, but we'll buy their food and then we'll be out. And now can we be on our way? This is what they're thinking as they go into the town of Sychar. I'll get what I need and then I'm on my way home. The disciples were probably thinking the, the exact same thing. And that's exactly what they did. And when they returned to where Jesus was, so they've gone and they bought the food from the Samaritans, they come back to where Jesus is as he's waiting by the well of Jacob there outside of Sychar. He's been talking to this woman. And they come and they have this food, the disciples do, and now they bring it to him. And he says, all right, I'm not hungry, guys. And they're thinking, well, when did you eat? Between the time that we went and bought food to, come, to where it's coming back, when did you have time to eat? And he tells them something incredibly significant. He says this in John chapter 4, verses 32 and 34. Listen to what he says. He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. You see what Jesus was telling them? He said, he sent them out into the town of Sychar to buy food from the Samaritans, and they did exactly that. But nothing else. When they returned with the food that they were told to buy, thinking that Christ was going to be pleased for them for going out of their comfort zone, Christ tells them, you missed it. You missed it. I sent you, yes, to buy food, but I sent you to a group of people who needed to hear the truth, who wanted to hear the truth. And all you guys were concerned about was getting away from them as quickly as possible. All you could think about was yourselves and avoiding eye contact with these people and encountering them as little as you could possibly do so when they were spiritually needy people that you were talking to and all around you there in the town of Sychar that were ready to be harvested, he says. So they come back and they lay the food in front of him and says, guys, this is it. This is what you came back with. And they're thinking, this is what he asked us to get. He said, you should have come back with a whole city of people. Amen. You came back with food. Congratulations, you did what I asked, and nothing more. And he says, you guys are farmers, right? You wait for a specific time to harvest, and I tell you, the harvest was ready to be plucked. The entire town of Sychar, they were like fresh fruit that was ready to be plucked. You ever picked an apple at an apple orchard that is just as ripe as can be? How hard is it to pluck that apple off that tree? Come on. How hard is it? It practically falls into your hand, right? They're not in the slightest hug. He says, that's how these people were. You barely had to do anything. All you had to do was bring them with you. And they would have come. They would have come. But you guys were so focused on yourselves, thinking that you're actually doing me service because, for crying out loud, you're going out of the comfort zone. You're in a place you don't want to be. You're talking to people that you don't want to talk to. You're buying food from people that you don't think they are worthy of even being humans. And you think I'm going to be pleased with that? How could you guys be so blind? How could you guys miss such an incredible opportunity? He says, all you had to do was tell them about me and just bring them here. But you couldn't even do that. I can't help but wonder 
Could it be possible that the Northeast is so spiritually apathetic because the believers in this part are so self-absorbed? Could it be that we care less about the souls of others than we do about getting out of our comfort zone? Could it be that rather than telling people about the truth, we're more concerned with avoiding those who look different, who talk different, who walk different, and act differently than we do? I wonder how many of us would hear the same admonishing from Christ that the disciples heard from him back in John chapter 4. That rather than being a servant for Christ and ministering to the people that God has put around us, we did everything we could to avoid them. I don't have all the answers, but perhaps we might be needing to build a bigger church building and a bigger school building if we were as consistent with our service for Christ outside this building as we are within it. And look at what we see with the sons of the prophets. Back here in 2 Kings chapter 6, look at what we see in verse number 2. So they come with a dilemma in verse number one. The place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. It's too small. We're outgrowing. So they say in verse number two, let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan and take thence every man a beam and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, go ye. As much as they had flourished under the teaching ministry of the prophet Elisha, they had immense respect for him and they brought the need to his attention with a proposed solution. They weren't going to take matters into their own hands, but were first going to make sure that Elisha signed off on all of this. Again, if their desire for bigger accommodations was stemming from a covetous heart, they would have never sought Elisha's permission. And Elisha would have dismissed it right away, knowing the real situation, that you guys don't need it. This place is perfectly adequate. But he signs off and he says, go ahead. Do what you need to do. And the solution they come up with is to build something themselves which they probably wouldn't have volunteered for if it was selfishly motivated. Instead, they most likely would have gone around soliciting money and getting contributions from whoever would give it to them so that they could probably hire someone else to do the work for them. That's not what we see happening here. These were humble men who were less concerned with fancy amenities as they were a more adequate dwelling for their growing numbers. They weren't drawing up plans of a fancy living arrangement with granite countertops in their kitchen and large bedrooms with each one having an ensuite bathroom and all these elegant light fixtures and a massive meeting hall that had marble floors. Based on what we see here in verse number two, they are building the structure themselves with whatever lumber they can carry. At best, this sounds like it's gonna be a very simple cabin-like structure with the very basic accommodations. These men didn't need all the bells and whistles because they were content with the simple things that God had provided them. Elisha, recognizing the need for a new building, as well as the sincerity of these people that are coming to him, he encouraged them to go forward with their plans. And we can learn a lot from this response from Elisha. Building these, these new accommodations was not Elisha's idea. This is the idea of the students that come to him. Those that were beneath him. His response says a lot about his own personal character. There are some people that will not acknowledge or even give the time of day to those who are beneath them. If an idea was not original to them, even if it's a great idea that is being offered to them, they're going to reject it. But that was not the case with the prophet Elijah. Superiors shouldn't consider themselves above receiving and weighing ideas from those that work beneath them. And when discerning the wisdom of the same, recognizing that those ideas could be a great benefit to them, they should not hesitate to accept it and act upon it. 
And then notice what else happened in verse number three. So he gives him the okay. He says, go ahead and do it. Verse number three, he says, and one said, be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. Eliza wasn't just pleased to hear and to okay the good idea. He ends up going with them. He says, absolutely, let's do this together. These men looked up to Elisha. He was their teacher. And they valued his input and they respected his authority. They also knew that uh, they also knew that he respected them and was not, to, not one to demean those who were beneath him, but was willing to support them in this necessary endeavor. Elisha didn't view the work that they were suggesting as beneath him, but he was eagerly willing to help in whatever way that he could. And you know what? He didn't come dressed like, he, like you see me. It was a work day for them. What would you all think if we had a work day and I showed up dressed as I am dressed right now? What would you think? He's probably not going to do much work, is he? What would you do if I walked around the building as all this work is being done, you guys are in, you know, like rags, you know, in comparison to me. Uh, no offense. But you, you came to work, right? You're wearing junky clothing because you know you're going to get dirty. Maybe we're doing some painting. Maybe we're doing something else that's going to require manual labor. You're going to be sweating. And you have come to work and you see me show up like this. And I'm walking around the building and I'm stepping over some of you that are cleaning the floors. And, oh, you missed a spot right there. Make sure you get that really good. Oh, you know, there's still some smudges on this window. Are you, are you really paying attention to what you're doing here? And I started critiquing every little last thing that you were doing. What would you think of me? You can be honest. Not much? Bob, you look like you had something you were going to say. Whoa. Right? What kind of a person would I be if I'm promoting a work day week on, you know, for weeks in advance saying, okay, everyone get ready on Saturday at 10 a.m. We're going to work. Make sure that you're here. Bring all your clothes that are going to be useful for work. Bring your tools that you're going to be needing to, to you know, get some projects done. Get ready for work. And then I showed up like this. I'm sure there's some things you'd like to say to me that you probably wouldn't say in church. What is Elisha doing? They say, listen, this is the project we'd like to get done. It was their idea. Why don't you come with? He says, you know what? Let's do it. Let's get busy. Give me some wood. I'll carry it. Let's get some work done. This is the only time you're going to see me take my coat off in church. <laughs> He's going to help him out. He's going to get some work done because he's a man of the people. He wants to make sure that they see where his heart truly is. And it's on them. It's to educate and pour into them. What kind of a leader is he if all he's concerned about is teaching one thing but not following up with actually living the other thing? So he says, he says, go ye at the end of verse number two. And they said, you know, be content, I pray. Why don't you come with us? And he says, you know what? That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Let's go and let's build this place together. He wasn't pleased to just sit back and do nothing. He was eagerly willing to help in whatever he could do. So notice, notice third, the location of the miracle. The location of the miracle. Look at verse number four. So they're all going together. It says, so he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, it was a good thing that Elisha went with them. I love what we read at the end of this verse. It says, they cut down wood. The sons of the prophets were eager and they're willing to work. They didn't ask for Elisha to come with them so that he might do all the work. Now, I'm sure he did some of the work, but they didn't bring him along saying, okay, we need you to do everything for us. They didn't find someone else to do the work for them. They didn't make the excuse that they were called to do a different kind of work and this wasn't the job that they were called to do. 
Rather than looking to hire someone else to do the work for them, they got their hands dirty and they began to work. And I think they did that because they had learned that from the prophet Elisha, who was never tired or never not able and willing to do work. He was always willing to get his hands dirty. And I think they learned that as an example from, from the prophet Elisha. So it says, when they got to the place where they were going to, and they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. And notice what it says in verse number five. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So as they're busy working, something goes wrong. And notice fourth, the objective of the miracle. The objective of the miracle. Look again at verse number five. It says, But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. The objective of the miracle was to recover the axe head that had fallen into the water. You know this happens from time to time where an axe head will fly off? I had this happen to me. I was the recipient of the axe head. It wasn't an axe. It was a sledgehammer, though. I was... I was holding a, a spike in the ground for uh, someone else who was swinging the sledgehammer to hammer into the ground. It, was a, it, was, it needed to be held. You're thinking, what kind of fool holds the, holds the nail? It, it was big enough. It was you know, half my body in length. So I'm holding it like this, and someone, not over the top of my head, but coming from this angle, is swinging the sledgehammer. And wouldn't you know, the head of that sledgehammer fell off. And you know what it did? It hit me. It hurts. But it happens sometimes. And it happens here. As he's cutting down a tree, all of a sudden, axe head goes flying, goes into the water. Now, it seems like such a small thing, right? Big deal. But the Lord had a purpose even in this. It's interesting that as the axe head goes flying into the water, the man cries out to Elisha for help, viewing this as something incredibly important and knowing that Elisha would see it the same way. Most of us would probably look at the situation and think, what is the big deal? Tools break all the time. We don't cry about it. David, do you cry about a broken tool? Okay. You got to work with me here. I mean, you saw the truck. Okay. Who else can I pick on? I'm afraid to even ask. Okay. Maybe we do cry about things. <laughs> Appreciate that, David. Most of us would look at this and say, what is the big deal? So the axe head was lost. We could just buy a new one and restore it to the owner because it was borrowed. And based on this man's reaction, though, the man clearly thought that the axe head was never going to be recovered. And here's the point. Even though, much to our shame, we have little to no faith of God showing himself strong on our behalf, we should always be quick to go to him with all our troubles, as big or as small as they are. Let me ask you. Has God ever turned us away when we've come to him sincerely asking for his help? No. Has God ever responded to one of his children who is in trouble by insisting that they not bother him? Or that they figure out a way out of their troubles on their own? Has God ever told you that? 
Has God classified what types of problems we can and cannot come to him with? Absolutely not. The truth is that all of our problems, big or even small, are all a drop in the bucket to God. Less than that to him. Even the biggest problems that we have, God is not up in heaven scratching his head and struggling to figure out what he's going to do. Oh, man. David's crying about a soul detractor. What in the world am I going to do to help him out with this problem? What am I going to do with this problem that this person has who just got this diagnosis that is just the world to them and they don't know what their lives are going to be like from this time forward? Does God ever panic? Does God ever stress? Not in the least. We have the blessed privilege of spreading out all of our problems before the God of all creation who spoke this entire universe into existence out of nothing. Nothing. He is the one who loves us to the point of sending us his only begotten son, but pouring out his wrath upon on, on his son on our behalf if God loves us that much to do all that for us not one of our concerns is ever too small for him if he made the iron that we're going to see here to swim to float trust me he is concerned with even the smallest matters that you bring to him the smallest things that bring you pain the smallest things that cause you trouble the smallest amount the things that lead to your stress he is concerned about it because if you're a child he's concerned about everything and notice fifth the means of the miracle the means of the miracle look at verse number six it says and the man of god said where fell it and he showed him the place and he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. The means of the miracle. Notice the change between Elisha. What Elisha is called between verse number one and here in verse number six. Look back at verse number one. It says, The sons of the prophets said unto Elisha. Here in verse number six, And the man of God said, Same guy. But in verse one, he's called Elisha. And here in verse number six, he's called the man of God. Elisha asks a simple question. Where fell it? Where fell it? You see, before God was going to use him to do the miraculous, Elisha is referred to as the man of God. God was about to use him for something special. And he asked a simple question, where fell it? And he's planting the seed a seed of hope within the man and all those that were present. And then he was shown the place where the axe had entered the water. Now, everything seems to happen very quickly because all Elisha does, it says, uh, it says in there in verse number six, he cut down a stick and he throws it in the water where he says the, the axe had went in and immediately it says the iron did swim. Everything happened so quickly. And notice number six, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. There are so many different ways of looking at this miracle and so many different meanings that have been drawn from this picture. And as we've made it our focus this morning to look on the importance of preparing future generations in the service of the Lord, which is what we see Elisha doing. I will say that this account serves as an excellent picture of God showing us that even the small things matter to him. These men were diligently working for something that was going to be a blessing, not just for them, 
but for others that would be trained and equipped in the ministry. Remember, they're, they're building a bigger dwelling to house the school and the sons of the prophets that are just growing in numbers that they can't control. They're outgrowing their place, so they are building a new facility for all the men that are going to be trained for the service of the Lord. God rewards those efforts of those who are faithful to him, even in the small things. Sometimes it may seem that our labor for the Lord goes unnoticed and that God doesn't seem to care about what is being done behind the scenes, but rest assured that whatever labor you are doing for the Lord, God is always aware of it and God will always bless you accordingly. We're told in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. It may, not have a, it may not have been a big deal to anyone else, but to this one man, this was a big deal. And God was showing him through the prophet Elisha that his labor was not going unnoticed. Believers are encouraged in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. No matter the work, if you're serving the Lord, your labor is never done in vain. Even if others may look down upon it, God will always hold it high in high regard and will bless you as you're faithful to him and to his cause. And notice finally, number seven, the lesson of the miracle. Very quickly, the lesson of the miracle. First, don't ever underestimate the value of God's presence in your life. Even when you're about to engage in manual labor, don't you ever underestimate the value of God's presence in your life. And second, be conscientious about borrowed items. If you borrow something from someone, you make it a point to take good care of that and respect the property of others. Treat the things that you have from other people better than you would treat something of your own. And third, like Elisha, do not despise those who are engaged in manual labor. Fourth, take advantage of opportunities to do good to others. Fifth, remember that God cares so deeply for you, even in the smallest matters. Sixth, know that there is nothing that is ever too difficult for God to do, even the impossible, like making iron to swim. And seventh, no matter the issue, remember that God has always made himself available to his children. He's always made himself available to his children, so you go and do the same. We have a lot of work to do to prepare the next generation. As Philippians 4, 6 states, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. May we be active in serving the Lord, not just within these walls, but in our lives, all around us, everywhere that we go, as we're seeking to minister to the people that God has placed in our path every single day so that we can prepare the next generation and maybe do something about the spiritual darkness that we see here in the Northeast. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be in your house, to learn from you, and to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in such a clear way, Lord, as we even leave here, understanding, Lord, how we, we take this knowledge that we've received and apply it to our day-to-day -day life. Lord, may we be beacons of light to the people that you have put in our path. May we let our light so shine before men that they may see their good works and glorify you, which art in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.